Well, we are nearly done with our exploration of Amos' message to Israel and Judah. Isn't that good news? <laughs> Amos has been heavy hitting. It's been, it's been hard. Uh, but we've got one more sermon. We're going to wrap that up next week. But uh, in Amos' prophecy that he has written down here, he is warning the people of Israel especially, but also Judah, of God's coming judgment. And he's issuing a call to repentance. One final call to repentance. Amos began, if you remember, his, uh, his, his message with uh, the roar of God's judgment. We talked about how several times he mentions that God is like a lion and he's roaring his judgment. And he begins with judgment on eight nations. And then Amos delivered three sermons calling God's people to repentance and restoration. So eight nations, three sermons, and he ends with five visions of judgment. And here in chapter 7, we're going to look at three of those visions. So if you go ahead and turn to Amos chapter 7, and we're going to see how Amos contended for God's kingdom on two different fronts. First, we'll see how these visions compelled Amos not to preach to the people, but they compelled him to pray to God on behalf of the people. Amos stepped beyond his prophetic role. He took on a priestly role and acted as a mediator between a holy God and a sinful nation. And secondly, we're going to see how Amos contended with the religious establishment, boldly calling out Israel's king, Jeroboam. Amos was bold. He was courageous, and he had this immense burden for the people of God. He never flinched when he was preaching hard truths. He stood up to authority, and he boldly pleaded with the sovereign Lord on behalf of the people. So first, let's look at how Amos contended with God for the sake of the people. Let's look at verses 1 through 9, and then we'll go back and we'll unpack all of this. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the second crop was coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. And then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Let's look at these first two visions, and then we're going to look at Amos' response. So the first vision, God showed Amos locusts. We see that in verses 1 through 3, locusts. Now, it says that after the the first crop, there came a second crop, and that's when the locusts were going to come and destroy the second crop. Basically, you had the first fruits of your harvest that you would give to the Lord as your tithe, and then you would give a lot of it to the king, sort of like your taxes, And there wasn't usually very much left from that first harvest for you and your family. So the second crop 
The second harvest was what you needed to survive. That's what would see you and your family through the winter. That's how you might sell or trade in order to to make a living and get the things that you needed to get. So when God threatened to send these locusts to strike down this, this last chance of harvest before winter came, it was devastating. And the locusts would have had a feast, but the people would have had a famine. It would have devastated Israel's economy and people would have starved and died. The second vision that God showed Amos was fire. A judgment by fire in verses 4 through 6. And this fiery judgment is said would burn up the land and it would dry up the sea, the great deep. It would literally, this fire would be so bad it would dry up the oceans. It would, it would, it would just turn the land into a crispy, I don't know what. And uh, it's pretty cataclysmic. I mean, we're talking disaster movie level horror here. I mean, this would have been absolutely total destruction. And notice Amos' response. To both of these visions, Amos' response, like I said, it wasn't to preach. He'd already preached. He had preached his heart out to the people. And Amos knew this wasn't working. The preaching was getting nowhere with the people. So perhaps he could pray to God. So that's how he responded. He prayed to God. Now, these were disturbing visions. You know, they're summarized in just a couple of verses for us. We have no idea how long these visions went on for Amos. They were disturbing. And it was breaking his heart. And he was deeply grieved for the people. I mean, Amos was a farmer himself, so he could really sympathize, especially with that first vision. He could sympathize with farmers seeing their second crop destroyed by locusts. He was horrified by the judgment, by fire. And so he responds by crying out and asking God for two things. First, to forgive. He says, forgive. Forgive. Don't hold this against us. Wipe the slate clean. Forgive. Show mercy. And then in the second response, he was so shocked by that second vision. He didn't just repeat the call to forgive. He prayed, stop it. Stop it, Lord. Stop it with the visions. I can't take any more of this. And stop the reality behind the visions. May the people of Israel stop their sin. May your wrath be stopped. Amos just wanted it all to go away. Kind of like how a lot of us feel about 2020. Just stop it. Two hurricanes at once. No, Lord, just stop it. You know, that's, that's how we feel. You watch the news every day and it's like, oh, I just can't take any more of this. We need to just stop it. And that is how Amos felt. He just wanted it all to end. Now, in both of these responses, Amos isn't pleading on anything in Israel and Judah that's good. He's not pleading on the basis of how wonderful Israel is or or how Judah is God's people. Instead, he points out they are small. They're weak. They're unable to survive this kind of devastation. Amos isn't basing his plea on anything in the people. Amos isn't even basing his plea to God on God's covenant promises to the people because Amos is well aware that the reason that judgment is coming is because the people of Israel and Judah have forsaken the covenant. They've taken that covenant and they have ripped it up to shreds. It's as if they've taken the wedding ring off, they've laid it aside, and they've said, see you later, God, I'm going to go pursue these other gods and idols. They had broken their vows. 
They had forsaken the covenant. So Amos doesn't even plead on the basis of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. No. Instead, Amos pleads on the basis of God's innate character. His character. Now, the prophet Joel, as we heard um, in our Old Testament reading, the prophet Joel, which comes right before Amos, um, he, he, was a, he was prophesying a good bit before Amos, and he was prophesying to Judah, not to Israel. He was prophesying to the southern kingdom. But Joel had a similar vision. He had a vision of locusts. God's judgment coming on the people of Judah in the form of locusts, just, just decimating the land. And in his prophecy, the Lord called Judah to repentance. The Lord offered forgiveness to Judah based on his character. Listen once more to Joel 2, 13 and 14. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents. We saw that word twice here in this passage in Amos. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offering and drink offerings for the Lord your God. This echoes the very description that God gave to Moses about himself. Remember Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and Moses wanted uh, the Lord to show him his glory. He said, let your glory pass by me, remember? And God said, you can't, you can't withstand my glory. It would consume you. It would destroy you. So I'm going to put you in this rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand, and as I pass by, I'll, I'll remove my hand. And you can basically see where I was. You can see the afterglow of my glory. You can see where my glory was. That's the best that you can handle. But as God passed by, he spoke these words. He declared to Moses what his glory was about. It wasn't about his power. It wasn't about his might. It wasn't about his omniscience and his omnipresence. No, he said that he is gracious and compassionate, and slow to anger, and abounding in love, and relenting from calamity. We all, every one of us, come before God on the basis of that. Not anything in and of ourselves. We come before God on the basis of His grace, His mercy, His compassion, His long-suffering patience and kindness. None of us have enough goodness anywhere within us to stand before God on our own recognizance. We are by nature children of wrath, Paul says. We are lost in the darkness. Jesus said we are like sheep without a shepherd. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Like Isaiah, if we even caught a glimpse of the glory of God, we would have to cry out, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because we are wicked and we are perverse. We would be utterly consumed by His holiness. Psalm 130 puts it well. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? None of us could stand. But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. The only way you and I can know the forgiveness of God. The only way that we can stand in His presence, the only way that we can serve Him and have a relationship with Him is because of His grace and mercy towards us. That's what this table represents, the cup 
and the bread, the body of Christ pierced and broken on the cross, the blood of Christ poured out for the redemption of our sins, when Jesus, the sinless Son of God, took the full force of God's wrath against our wickedness so that we could enjoy the fullness of the riches of His grace. Like Amos, Jesus assumed the priestly role. He stood as a mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. And He makes intercessions for us this day because of what He did on Calvary's cross. And so we can approach this table. We can partake of these elements. We can worship God with thanksgiving and praise. We can approach His throne of grace boldly in prayer because of what Jesus did. Because of who He is. Not because of anything in and of ourselves. Because we are weak. We are small. We are sinful. Our hearts are wicked until we are made new by the blood of the Lamb. Amos pleaded for mercy for Israel and Judah. In Exodus 32 and Numbers 14, we see two examples of when Moses pleaded for mercy on the complaining and rebellious people of Israel in the wilderness. In Genesis 18, Abraham pleaded for God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, the poster children of wickedness and perversion. Elijah in 1 Kings 18 prayed for God to spare Israel and send rain, ending a years-long drought. And similarly, it's as if Jesus Himself is struggling, is contending with God for us. He bore our sins on Calvary. He suffered the wrath we deserved. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. Like these Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah and Abraham, Jesus prayed earnestly with God. He asked for the cup of wrath to pass from before Him that Thursday night in Gethsemane. His burden over this was so great, He was sweating drops of blood. As Hebrews 5, 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Submission. Jesus prayed earnestly in that garden for him and for us. And the Bible says that he continues to pray for us before the Father. As Romans 8.34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one condemns you. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. And he's doing what? He's interceding for us. So as we approach this table, here in a little bit, let's remember Jesus who bore our sins. Jesus who suffered for our sakes. He is our high priest. He is our mediator pleading on our behalf before the Father. And if God relented because of Amos' pleas, how much more is God going to relent because of the pleas of His Son Jesus? Amen? He will relent. He is a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents from sending calamity. But there's also a third vision here. In this third vision, God showed Amos a plumb line. And as Ben illustrated uh, in his children's sermon and talked about, a plumb line is a tool that you can use to make sure that things are straight, uh, to make sure a wall is straight, to make sure and see, you know, is this... uh, 
Is this pulpit straight? Is the walls of the church straight? And I told Ben, I said, you ought to take this thing around and hold it up to the walls in the sanctuary and see how straight it is. And that might make people a little nervous, so we're not going to do that. But, you know, if the walls of a building aren't plumb, if they're crooked, that can be a bad thing, can't it? Those walls can become unstable. They can be even deadly. And what God says is that His Word is a plumb line. And by it, He measures to see how straight and true we are. Do we conform with His good, pleasing, and perfect will? Are we upright in our character and just in our conduct? And of course, the answer to that is, we're not. We're not. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Paul says everybody's under the power of sin. Doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what your religious background is, we're all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So is there any question in Paul's mind about the goodness of the human heart? Is there any question in Paul's mind about how just really, you know, we just need to be more educated and get our acts together and we're going to be fine? No one understands. No one seeks God. No one's good enough. And he goes on to say, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Because what is the law? The law is just a plumb line. All the law is there to do is to show us how crooked we are. This doesn't make anything straight. This will not fix the problem. It only exposes the problem. And so he goes on to say, rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by what? His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Amen? That's the good news. We all fall short of God's standard. We are crooked. We are perverse. We're as useless and as dangerous as a crooked, unstable wall. And one of two things happens to a crooked, unstable wall. Either it is torn down and thrown into the rubble heap and maybe burned, or it's made true. It's corrected. It's straightened out. And that's true for all people. We're either going to be cast away to burn for eternity or we're going to let God straighten us out. And the choice is ours. Now, for the people of Israel, they had rejected that latter choice time and time again. And so now God is about to throw them out on the rubbish heap. Assyria is about to come and bring God's judgment. But you know what? For us, it's not too late. It's not too late for you. Jesus wants to take your crooked heart and make it straight. He wants to forgive your sins and make you clean. He wants to take the broken pieces of your life and make you whole. If you let Him, 
if you surrender your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength to Him. That's what the cross of Christ is about. That's what this table reminds us of. And I pray this morning that if you don't know Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life, if you've not turned yourself over to Him in humility and confession and in trust, I pray that in a few moments when we sing that you would come this morning and give your heart and life to Jesus. Let Him make your crooked heart straight. Let Him give you a fresh start. But first, there's a second part that we're going to look at real quick of Amos' contending for the kingdom. He not only wrestled with God for the salvation of Israel from Assyria, he also wrestled with the people of Israel themselves, namely their chief priest, Amaziah, and King Jeroboam, whom he represented. Let's finish reading this chapter in verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. Do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Nor a prophet I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will, die, will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will certainly go into exile away from their native land. So Amos and his fiery message were not welcome by the people of Israel, especially by the king and his court. In fact, those in power saw Amos and his sermons as basically a threat to national security. So dangerous that he needed to leave the country. Amaziah, you have to remember, we talked about this. Amaziah was King Jeroboam's personal priest. He had been set up, this whole religious system had been set up by King Jeroboam in Israel. And so for Amaziah, king and country mattered more than God and his kingdom. Safety, security, and prosperity mattered more to him than did the righteousness, justice, and covenant faithfulness that God required. Amaziah apparently had been reporting to King Jeroboam what Amos was preaching on, and the king wasn't happy. Of course, he wasn't faithfully communicating uh, Amos' message. You know, we might say today it was fake news. He was only telling part of it. He was twisting Amos' words. For example, nowhere did Amos ever say that Jeroboam would die by the sword. He never says that. But that's what Amaziah had communicated to King Jeroboam, and the king believed this conspiracy theory. So Amaziah, assuming that Amos was in it for the money like he was, tells Amos to go back home. Earn your bread preaching back home. You're no longer welcome in the king's sanctuary. Did you notice that? The king's sanctuary? Isn't that part of the problem? The sanctuary, the temple, was no longer the Lord's. It was the king's. 
It was no longer about the kingdom of God. It was about the kingdom of Israel. No more was God's prophetic word welcomed. Only what was politically correct. Only what supported the status quo of the rich and the powerful. And what was Amos' reply? Well, Amos was no coward, so he didn't run away back to Judah. Amos was no prophet for hire, so he didn't change his message because his message wasn't his. He was a simple farmer. He tended sheep and raised sycamore fig trees. He was called by God to go to Israel and proclaim this message. And so now Amos proclaims God's judgment on Amaziah. He says, Amaziah, you're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your wealth. You're going to lose your position. You're going to lose your life. You're going to go into exile, and you're going to die in a pagan land. All these things that Amaziah thought mattered, all these things that he thought gave him a special place, all these things he had wrapped his identity up would all be taken from him. See, Amaziah may have had all that wealth and power and position, but Amos had the calling in the Word of God. Amaziah may have served Israel's king, but Amos served Israel's God, the king of kings. Amaziah said and did what he had to in order to keep the king happy and the people at ease. But Amos contended for the kingdom of God. He wrestled with God in prayer to show mercy on this wayward people, and God spared Israel a fate worse than exile. Exile was nothing compared to what these first two visions showed what God had contemplated doing. And Amos wrestled with Amaziah. He wrestled with the man-made systems of power that he represented so that he could faithfully proclaim the truth of God's Word. And again, Amos is in good company. We think about like Moses speaking God's truth before Pharaoh. Samuel speaking God's truth before King Saul. Nathan calling King David to account. Peter, James, and John refusing to back down before the Sanhedrin. Paul before King Agrippa. And Jesus before the religious authorities and the power of the Roman Empire. Refusing to be silent. See, Jesus also contended with men for the kingdom of God. Pilate thought that Jesus was going to come and stir up some kind of armed rebellion. But Jesus made it clear his kingdom was not of this world. It wouldn't conquer Rome through swords and armies, but rather through one man's death on a Roman cross. Jesus couldn't be silenced. His kingdom couldn't be stopped. The grave could not contain him. A few short laters, Jerusalem and her temple and her religious system of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and priests would be destroyed by Rome. And a few centuries after that, Rome itself would be no more. And 2,000 years later, what still stands? The church of Jesus Christ. The Word of God. The gospel is still advancing. The church is still growing. The message hasn't changed. God still answers prayer. And Jesus Christ still saves. The question for our church is this. The question for you and me. Are we contending for the kingdom? Are you wrestling with God in prayer for your country? For this world? For your lost Friends and neighbors and co-workers and classmates and family and friends. Are you wrestling with God in prayer over these people who will suffer a fate far worse than what Israel suffered? Colossians 4.12. Paul writes and says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Jesus Christ, sends greetings. 
And listen to what he says about Epaphras. He is always wrestling in prayer for you. For the Colossian Christians. Epaphras was always wrestling in prayer for them. And what was he praying for? That you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Who do you need to be wrestling in prayer with today? Not just those who are lost, that they would come to faith in Christ, although we should. Not just for our nation and our world, which is so broken and lost and confused and spiraling into chaos. Of course we should wrestle in prayer for them. But are you wrestling in prayer for your church? For your pastors? Trust me, we need it. For your children? Your spouse? For those that you, like Epaphras, want to see standing firm in the will of God and mature in their faith. Are you contending for the kingdom in prayer? Are you willing to contend for the kingdom with people? Are you willing to stand firm and speak God's truth boldly and lovingly? Will you, like the apostles, say, we must obey God rather than man? Listen. We're blessed in Georgia, but as I'm sure you're well aware, there are churches in California right now that are contending for the kingdom with their ability to even meet and worship, with their ability to even sing songs of praise to God, contending for the kingdom. We are in a spiritual war for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Will you be a contender? Will you fight the good fight? This morning, there are people, I'm sure, who have been contending for you. They've been praying for you, inviting you to church, sharing their testimony with you, sharing God's word with you. Maybe this morning you know in your heart of hearts that, that you have been wrestling against God. You've been resisting this call to salvation. And this morning you need to come, you need to confess your sins, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus and stop fighting. Stop resisting. Stop trying to earn your way to heaven as if you've got enough good things within you to please God. And let Him wash away your sins. Let Him make you new and whole again. If you're worshiping with us online or on the radio, please reach out to us and let us know that you've trusted your life to Christ. If you have any questions, we've got people that would love to visit with you, to give you a call, send you even an email, and just to try to explain to you how you can know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you're here this morning and you need to put your trust in Jesus, I invite you to come as we sing and do that today. Maybe God is leading you and your family to unite with this church and to say, I know the Lord, I've been baptized, but I want to come and unite with this church family because I want to worship and serve here as a member of First Baptist Thompson. Whatever the Lord has led on your heart, let's not contend against Him. Let's not fight. Let's surrender. And be obedient to him today. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank you for what this table represents that we will soon gather around and, and, and observe. But Father, before we do that, we need to examine our hearts. We need to see if we have a right relationship with you. That begins by knowing that we have turned from our sins, asked for your forgiveness and grace, and trusted our eternal lives to Jesus. And I do pray if there's anybody listening, watching, or here in this room that needs to do that, they would do that right now and not delay another moment. Father, for the rest of us, 
there's any unforgiveness in our heart towards someone, if we have got a broken relationship with someone, I pray that, that we would not just come to this table as if everything is, is A-OK. That we would confess that before you and we would make a point in our hearts right now to be made right with one another. Father, if there's anybody here that needs to come and surrender their lives to you in another way, into ministry, whether that's full-time ministry or serving in some aspect through the church or, or going out and sharing the gospel with someone they know to be lost, maybe it's to come and unite with this church. I pray that they would be obedient to you. In Jesus' name.